0: passage this morning is Genesis chapter 50 from verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children also, the children of Machia, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt.
1: Revenge can be a a very powerful motivation, Uh, and it's a motivation that's pretty easy for us to understand, easy for us to relate to. You might not think of yourself that way, but movie makers know that you're like that. Most action movies entirely revolve around the theme of revenge. There's a bad guy who hurts the hero in some way, and the rest of the movie is us waiting for him to take revenge. If you have ever seen a movie with Mel Gibson, Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Clint Eastwood, Tom Cruise... It was about revenge, wasn't it? Except for Bridges of Madison County. I really didn't get why Clint Eastwood was in that, but that's a whole other topic. But any of the movies that these guys are in, it's all about revenge. It's all about the bad guy getting what he deserves. Uh, There's a television show that's been running on Channel 7 for four seasons now. It's simply called Revenge. It's the story of Emily and her plan to take revenge on every single individual that she believed to be involved in the demise and the death of her father. See, TV story writers and movie makers, they know that we can relate to that idea of revenge. So as we pick up the story of Joseph this morning, we start by wondering whether or not Joseph might be looking for his revenge. I mean, he's clearly the good guy in the story and his brothers have clearly done the wrong thing by him. So will Joseph now want his revenge? So at the beginning of chapter 42, and it would be great if you've got your Bible open there in front of you, the beginning of chapter 42, the scene changes from Egypt where we've been looking for the last few chapters, uh, the story of Joseph and all of the extraordinary things that he's done in Egypt. We now switch back to Canaan. There's a famine and Joseph has managed to prepare the people of Israel, but the famine is in full swing and the surrounding countries are running out of food. Back in Canaan, Jacob hears that there is food in Egypt. So he sends his boys down there to get some corn from Egypt to buy some food for them to be able to eat. I love Jacob's instructions right there at the beginning of chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just sit there and look at each other? It sounds like he's got a house full of teenage boys, doesn't it? I mean, why aren't you doing something? Why don't you go down to Egypt and and buy some corn down there. But look at what he says. I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. That's how serious this is, that the famine is now well and truly underway. So he sends his sons down. Well, he sends 10 of his 11 remaining sons down. His youngest, Benjamin, he won't let him go. Benjamin is Joseph's only full brother, if you remember the family tree. Uh, He was the only other son born to Rachel, Jacob's true love. So he refuses to let Benjamin go. Benjamin is now the favourite. Joseph was the favourite, but he's gone. And Benjamin is now the favourite. It's bad enough that he's lost Joseph, he's not going to lose Benjamin as well. It's interesting, I I think he'd be perfectly happy, it seems, to lose any of the other ten. He's happy for them to go down there, but he refuses to let Benjamin go. Well, the ten sons arrive in Egypt and they go to see the man who is in charge of the distribution of the grain. And they bow down before him without realising who it is. But Joseph knows who they are. And Joseph recognises what's happening here that these 10 have bowed down before him. Just like his dream when he was a young man, when he was 17, remember? He, he, he knew that the day would come when all of his family would be bowing down before him. But again, try to put yourself into Joseph's shoes at this point. Surely revenge has got to pop up in your mind, hasn't it? I mean, think about what these 10 men did to him. They threw him in a well hoping that he would die in there. And then eventually they sold him as a slave. They sold him, their own brother. Surely revenge has got to be in there. And and as we read through, we're wondering if that might be what Joseph has in mind. Joseph keeps his identity a secret and he taunts them with questions. He demands that they answer these questions. He accuses them of being spies these ten brothers are in a very vulnerable position. They've come with money to this foreign land to hopefully buy some grain, but now they're being accused of being spies, coming only to rob the land. Well eventually Joseph insists that his brothers go and find their youngest brother and bring him back down, and to ensure that that will happen, he keeps Simeon in prison while the other brothers go home to get Benjamin and bring him back down to Egypt as well. Joseph loads them up with grain and even puts their own money back into the sack and sends them back to Canaan. When they return home, they tell Jacob about all of the things that have happened, but Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go. And look at what he says. It's verse 38 of chapter 42. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. He point blank refuses to let him go. It's a pretty big call for Jacob. It means sacrificing Simeon, doesn't it? I mean, they're going to leave him in prison down there. But he seems willing to lose Simeon because he won't even contemplate the possibility of losing Benjamin. But it's interesting what hunger will do to a person because the grain that they bought runs out and the only option is to go back down to Egypt to buy some more. Not too long ago in the story Jacob was saying there is no way that Benjamin will be allowed to go down to Egypt. But now the rumbling in his stomach has him reconsidering that whole thing with Benjamin and he seems to be reasonably happy about Benjamin going down there. Joseph puts part two of his plan into action when all of the brothers, including Benjamin, arrive there. He overwhelms them with generosity, prepares a meal for them. And finally, Joseph, when he can pretend no longer, he reveals who he is to his brothers. Their initial response is disbelief. They couldn't believe that he would still be alive after all of this time, that he's not dead. There's an enormous amount of emotion as you read through this story. There's a couple of points in the story where where Joseph has to leave the room because he's just so emotional. He has to cry. This is before he's revealed himself. He's so emotional when he actually sees his younger brother, Benjamin. Eventually, Joseph, once they've understood what's happened and and they understand who Joseph is, he eventually sends for Jacob to be brought back with the rest of his family back down to Egypt so they can ride out the famine down there in Egypt. Jacob is thrilled to hear that Joseph is alive and quite remarkably, it says that he packs everything. doesn't just take a few things with him for a short time in Egypt. He packs everything he owns to move down there. Jacob is a man, when we saw the Jacob story, we saw that Jacob was a man who grew in his faith and his trust in the promises that God had made. He didn't start out a particularly faithful person. He was a con man and he seemed to be running from everyone, including God. But later in his life, Jacob becomes the man who believes God's promises, that his life is shaped by those promises. So leaving the land, well, that's a big deal. I mean, God has promised that he's going to give this land to Jacob and to Jacob's descendants. But as he leaves the land, we see what he prays. We see how he approaches leaving the land. He prays to God, he makes a sacrifice there, he takes everything with him, and when he reaches Beersheba... He stops there to pray. That's kind of the very edge of the promised land, just before leaving this land that God had promised to give them. And God speaks to Jacob as well. God promises that he will come back to the land, that God will give him the land. Leaving the the land was going to be a significant event. But God says that he's standing by the promises that he has made. But have a look in chapter 46, the next thing that we read after all of those promises that God makes about how you will return to the land, we've got one of those genealogies. I suppose everyone's got that relative, that uncle who lives somewhere, normally up on the central coast, Woiwoi or Etalong it seems to be, and they're right into family trees. You know, the, has everyone got one of those uncles or is it just me who has one? They know every single detail. They can trace you right back to the first, they can trace you right back to William the Conqueror. It seems to be their pastime now that they're retired. They've got so much time on their hands, they're going to chase up that whole family tree. Can I quickly apologise to anyone who is that family tree person here? Sorry, (laughs) Kerry. It's a great thing that you're doing and I'm sure everyone's going to appreciate your work. But that's not why we're given this family tree here. It's not that the writer just had a little bit of spare time and thought they'd fill in a few details. Now, something profound is being said in the end of chapter 46. This list really confirms that what God promised is happening. See, God promised Abraham descendants, as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And this list that we now have, these descendants show that God's actually working to fulfil that promise. There's now 70 of them. Do you remember at at the end of the story of Abraham, when Abraham and Sarah died, there was one? Now there are 70 and the number is growing quickly. He's just reaffirmed the promises that he made to Jacob. He says, yes, you will come back to this land and I will make you into a great nation. And in case you're wondering if God's good to his word, it's almost as if the writer says, well, have a look at this. He's doing it. He's doing what he's promised to do. Well, Jacob and the rest of the family arrive back in Egypt and they settle there. The famine continues, but because of the way that Joseph has managed affairs, the people in Egypt manage to ride out the famine. The closing chapters of this book really deal with two deaths, the death of Jacob and then finally the death of Joseph. Jacob's dying request is that his body be taken back to the promised land and buried there in the family burial plot in the paddock that Abraham had purchased from Ephron the Hittite every time this passage is described we're told that it's the passage that the paddock that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite Jacob's grandparents are buried there his parents are buried there and his wife Leah is buried there but it's not just that this is the family burial plot again It's the fact that it's the promised land. That's why Jacob wants to be buried there. He wants to be buried in the land that one day God will give to all of his descendants. Jacob dies in a foreign land, but he dies still trusting that God will fulfil those promises. And Joseph does a similar thing when he dies. If you've got your Bible right to the very end of Genesis chapter 50, Verse number 24, Joseph's brothers are worried now that their father has died. How is Joseph going to deal with them? They had assumed that Jacob still being alive was probably the only thing that was stopping Joseph from taking revenge. And they're worried that he will take revenge. But look at what it says in verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So it's not just about being buried with the rest of the family. That's not what it's about. It's about being buried in the land that God is going to give them. And that little paddock that used to belong to Ephron the Hittite is the only part of that land that now belongs to God's people at this point in time. But do you see the confidence that God will do what he's promised to do? He's so certain that that will happen. Well, how do you sum up Joseph's life? Well, I think Joseph himself sums it up quite nicely there in chapter 50. Go back to verse number 20. When his brothers expressed their concern about what he might do to them, he says this in verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, that kind of sums up Joseph's life, doesn't it? He lived his life fully aware that God was in control of all things. The great things being elevated to that position in Egypt, but also the bad things. God was in control when he was thrown into that well. God was in control when he was sold as a slave. God was in control when he was thrown into that prison. Joseph knew that all of the circumstances in his life, no matter what happened, he could trust God. So rather than wanting revenge on his brothers when they turn up in Egypt, he just wants to reunite the family. He wants to bring them all together. He wants to ensure that they're kept safe during this famine. I had a Christian friend uh, a few years ago who used to work with a guy. Before he'd become a Christian, he used to travel from Sydney regularly down to Canberra with a guy that he worked with. It was an older man who was a Christian. So at this time, my friend wasn't a Christian. And on the trips down there and back each week, they they used to get to talking a lot and really got to share their whole life stories. Uh, The older guy talked about the hardships that he'd faced in life, the death of his wife, a series of tragedies that involved his children and business and all kinds of things, some terrible things that happened to this man. And my friend on one of their trips down there said to this guy, how can you still have faith in God after all of that stuff that you've been through? And the older man replied, are you kidding? It's only my faith in God that got me through all of those things. And I can't help but think that that might be exactly the same way that Joseph would answer that question. How can you you still have faith in God when when you're chucked in a well, when you're sold off in slavery? How can you still have faith in God when you're sitting in a prison? Well, I think Joseph would want to say, it's only been my faith in God that's got me through all of those things. But there's more to the Joseph story than that. Joseph's story is not just about making the most of a bad situation. It's not simply about God being the one who's in control of all things. God had made promises way back with Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. And there's a sense in which that's what's happening here with Joseph, isn't it? See, chapter 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is, now, what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Many lives are saved by what Joseph has done, not just his family, but the lives of the people of Egypt, the lives of the nations around them are saved because of what Joseph has done. But there's one more thing to the Joseph story. So Joseph says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I can't read those words without thinking that they could be words that Jesus could have easily spoken. I mean, here was Jesus rejected by his own people, treated unfairly and unjustly by the authorities and ultimately put to death in the most barbaric way on the cross. All that was done to him was clearly intended to harm him. But God intended it for good. He intended it for the saving of many lives. See, and ultimately it's Jesus who truly is that blessing to the nations. Ultimately, it's Jesus who brings about the salvation of many. See, in the end, the story of Joseph just points us perfectly to Jesus, doesn't it? He's that Jesus figure hovering in the pages of the Old Testament who who helps us understand what Jesus has come to, to do. You intended to harm me, Joseph says, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. And we know how God has done that through his son.